The Vita or Passio of the Venerable Hermit Meinrad. In the time of Charles, most glorious emperor of the Franks, and the first among them to receive the name of Caesar, Meinrad was born in Alamannia, in the country which of old was called Sulca. <laughs> I'm novice Tony Wolnikowski. And I'm brother Joel Blaze. This is our podcast, Echoes from the Bell Tower. Stories of wit and wisdom from Benedictine monks who live, work, and pray in southern Indiana. You might remember in our last episode, I introduced myself as novice Jonathan. Well, since then, I made my first profession as a monk of St. Meinrad, and I was given the new name, Brother Joel. We will actually be talking about monastic names in our next episode on April 28th, so be sure to subscribe to hear that episode, because today we'll be hearing about St. Meinrad, the man, the martyr, the place. This episode opened with Father Adrian Burke reading from the Vita, or Life, of St. Meinrad. He'll continue to read it throughout this episode. The Vita was written about 50 years after the death of St. Meinrad. So that would be about the year 910-915. That manuscript was written in Latin, and it's kept in the library of St. Gall in Switzerland. Father Guy Mancini, a monk of St. Meinrad, translated the Vita into English, and the monastic community reads it every year on the Feast of St. Meinrad. The story of St. Meinrad is very interesting in the sense that here you have a man who goes off to be by himself and to search for God. And that's a part of all of our lives. This is Father Harry Hagen. He's been a monk of St. Meinrad since 1971. The story of St. Meinrad is not just the story of one person, but it is the people then that come together to form the first monastery in 934, and then the monks that have carried on that tradition for over a thousand years who sent two monks to southern Indiana to establish a place that bears his name and all of the monks of St. Meinrad and then all of the people that have gathered with uh, the monks of Einsiedeln through their thousand years and the people that gather with St. Meinrad to carry out uh, this work of searching for God uh, living this life in God and, and then sharing that with all the people that go on. And so to focus just on one person when you talk about St. Mindred misses all of these other people that have been joined to this uh, person for over a thousand years. Before I tell the story of the passion and death of the venerable man Mindred, It will be good as a kind of foretaste to write briefly of when he was born, whence he came and where he went, where, or rather to whom he was first sent, to learn to read and write, under what abbot he took upon himself the keeping of the monastic life. It is believed that St. Meinrad was born in 800, and according to the Vita, he was sent to the monastery of Reichenau as a boy to study under the care of a monk and family relative, Erlebald. We no longer accept children into the monastery. Uh, Me and Joel actually entered when we were 28, but the youngest we'll accept would be 18. St. Meinrad would have also entered as a novice, just as Brother Joel and I have. St. Meinrad was later ordained a deacon, and after that a priest, 
under the abbot of Reichenau, a man named Hatto. Hatto was very distinguished for his teaching, good works, and nobility of life, and he was also the bishop of Basel. He had retired and had become a hermit, and there was a kind of a move at this period of monks looking for that life focus totally on God, and Meinrad was very much caught up in that. After Hatto retired, Meinrad's teacher, Erlebald, was made abbot, and he invited Meinrad to become a monk of the abbey. Meinrad was then sent to Lake Zurich to be a teacher, which today is about an hour car ride. Reichenau is in Lake Constance, which is right on the border between Switzerland and Germany. One day, he took with him some students he had brought up, and crossing the lake, entered a deserted place which adjoined the lake shore. He went all the way to the Swiss Alps, and came to the village of Kama to do some fishing, and to find a place for a hermitage. Meinrad finds a place for his hermitage, and that night he meets a woman at an inn, that he realizes is dear to God, and he pours out to her the secret of his heart, which is that he wants more than anything to give himself totally to God by becoming a hermit. She tells him that if he persists in this desire, she will support him. And that particular moment is celebrated in the Abbey Church with the St. Meinrad triptych, which shows the life of St. Meinrad, but in the middle of that shrine is Meinrad and this woman, and that shrine is dedicated to the donors of St. Meinrad. And in the base of that shrine is a box that contains all of the names of the donors. Just as St. Meinrad relied on the help of this woman, St. Meinrad the Archabbey relies on the help of benefactors, co-workers, and anyone who donates their time and support. There's a huge connection here for us. Meinrad tells the woman not to tell anyone about his desire to become a hermit, until he goes back to his monastery and talks to his abbot. Once he receives permission from his abbot, he does eventually return to build a tiny hut for himself in the lonely place of Mount Etzel. We think of hermits as being people that are kind of cut off and don't talk to anybody and are completely, you know, out of society. But that was really not true there. The hermit was a kind of a father confessor, spiritual director, uh, psychologist to people, and so people would come and see him and uh, tell him their story, and he would listen. So many people came, in fact, that he moved from Mount Edsel several miles back deeper into the forest to establish his hermitage. And the word for hermitage in German is uh, Einsiedeln. Uh, in English, Ein, one, Siedeln like the word settle, so a place where one person settles. So he establishes a new hermitage, a new Einsiedel uh, deep in the forest. He lives there as a hermit for 26 years, but in 861, two men come to the hermitage, and according to the story, the chickens go wild because they realize something terrible is going to happen. We have chickens. I wonder if our chickens would protect us from any robbers or murderers. They give us some pretty good eggs. Meinrad has just finished offering his mass, and uh, the story tells us that he realized that these people had come to kill him. But nonetheless, he welcomes them, and he offers them something to eat. And so statues of St. Meinrad typically show him holding a cup 
and a loaf of bread as a kind of a sign of his hospitality, his willingness to invite these people who are a threat to him, to invite them in and welcome them as Christ. That's why St. Meinrad is known as the martyr of hospitality. The two robbers, Richard and Peter, believed that St. Meinrad had money. The reason was hermits would receive money from wealthy visitors after giving them advice. The money was then used to be given to the poor or other visitors who weren't as well off. However, in this instance, St. Meinrad had no money. Meinrad asks the men to put a candle at his head and feet after they kill him, and then to light them. Then all at once Richard seized the blessed man with his filthy hands, and locked his little body fast in his arms, weakened as it was by fasting. And with an oath, he ordered his companion to club the holy man. Peter disabled Meinrad by beating him on his sides and legs, while the holy man raised his hands to God. Richard said, We haven't got all day. Hit him in the head and finish him off. Hurry up, or I'll do it myself. And at once he took up the club and landed a blow on Meinrad's head with all his might. So stricken, the holy man sank to the ground, half dead. And they flung themselves on him and strangled him with their hands until he breathed out his spirit. Meinrad's soul then went forth and in the very last grasp of breath an odor of such sweetness came out and filled the whole cell as if perfumes of all aromas had been strewn around and were sending out their fragrance. The story tells us that the men lay Meinrad in his bed and put a candle at his head, as he had asked. They took the other candle to the chapel to get a flame, but when they came back to Meinrad, the candle at his head had already been lit by heaven. The robbers became frightened and immediately fled. Now there were some ravens who used to come regularly to the servant of God when he was alive and take what was offered from his hands. And as if wishing to avenge the dead man, the ravens followed the thieves while they were fleeing from the hermitage and filled the woods with loud cawing. And flying as close to the murderer's heads as they could, they published the crime that had been committed. So the men are arrested, and medieval justice is served. And the monks come from his monastery, Reichenau, and take the body back there. In a way, because he had kind of made the place sacred, hermits begin to gather in that area. And in 934, they come together at his hermitage, his Einsiedeln, and establish a new monastery named Einsiedeln under the patronage of Our Lady. And uh, about a hundred years later, the body of St. Manred is transferred from Reichenau to Einsiedeln and remains there. Reichenau, again, was the monastery where St. Manred went to as a little boy to school. And like St. Meinrad today, it was a monastery with a lot going on. It ran a school and had businesses. It was a big monastery with a lot of pieces, and it played an important role in the kingdom of Charlemagne. Here at St. Meinrad, we follow the rule of St. Benedict. But there's also a larger monastic tradition, which can be traced back to Reichenau. And what you find at, at Reichenau is something that's really larger than 
you find in the rule of Benedict. Uh, the rule of Benedict doesn't have a school, for instance. And the rule of Benedict really talks about kind of everything being done by the monks. But clearly at Reichenau, I mean, you had the monks, but you had other people involved in this kind of great work that was going on. The rule of Benedict was being adopted in the Holy Roman Empire under Charlemagne, and then his son. I think the typical Hollywood version of monasticism is one where monks don't talk to anyone, and they're all by themselves and cut off. But that was not the monastic world of Reichenau. And even St. Benedict allowed in his rule for monasteries to adapt the rule to their own circumstances. They were training people, not only monks, but they were training people to take their place in the kingdom, in the, the royal court. It's a, a larger kind of understanding of monasticism. And it seems to me that here at St. Mondard, we, you know, we're Benedictine monks, but still we carry on this kind of larger Swiss tradition where we have schools, where we have this kind of outreach. On the other hand, we have this patron who reminds us that that all of this is about seeking God. As you can see, St. Minard the Man is a very important part of our history, even though he never stepped foot in southern Indiana. But we do have his finger bone. Oh, that's true. As a relic. (laughs) It's very interesting to think about St. Meinrad as a place. This is Father Dennis Robinson, the president rector of our seminary and school of theology. And I think the idea of place is something that is extremely important for Benedictine monks. In the Benedictine order, we take a vow of stability, which means that we remain committed to a physical place in the course of our monastic life, no matter how long that might be. And so you really do commit yourself to a very particular geographical location and and also all of the values uh, that that location represents. St. Meinrad the Place today really began in the 1850s when two monks, Father Ulrich Christen and Father Beat O'Connor, came from the Abbey of Einsiedeln in Switzerland. And uh, they came down the Ohio River and they arrived on top of this hill, which at that time uh, was really a wilderness. We bought farmland uh, from a local uh, family, and that family is still in the area. Uh, we inhabited a log cabin, and from those, those very small beginnings, really the Benedictine life began to be lived here on top of this hill in southern Indiana, transferring that great tradition of St. Meinrad from the Abbey of Heinzidel in Switzerland to this place. At the time of St. Meinrad's founding, much of the local population was German-speaking, but most of the Catholic clergy were French-speaking. The monks sent from Einsendel in Switzerland were able to minister to the German-speaking people in the area. When we settled here in that little log cabin on top of the hill, we really were kind of very focused on the need to minister to folks in this area and also the need to begin looking at how we can prepare students to be priests. And so doing work among the people was a great priority for us from the very beginning. It really was our reason for coming. St. Meinrad was also a spiritual center where monks trained priests and worked with co-workers to fill the need of the abbey and the surrounding communities. Carol Tresh, who is a co-worker at St. Meinrad and a lifelong resident, will paint a picture of our small town. St. Meinrad, the town, was actually settled in 1861, which was seven years after the Arch Abbey came into play. 
as a town, I think St. Minoret is unique, not only because of the Arch Abbey, but just the townspeople, even though we're a town of right now roughly 850 people, it's a very dedicated bunch of people. The town of St. Minoret was planned and laid out by our first abbot, Martin Marty. And it was actually settled and established on January 28, 1861, one week after the Feast of St. Minoret. So lots were sold. And at that time, of course, as small towns usually are, we were very self-sufficient. You know, it had the brewery, it had the livery stables, it had the stores, and everything that was needed to make a small town, just as every small town in that era. But we very much collaborated with the church, with the Arch Abbey, Many of the people that worked here at that time and helped build the buildings and get things settled are family members of people that still work here today. So there's a great historical significance even after 150 years. We're very much a part of the collaboration of the Arch Abbey. And this group of people were not only depending on the Arch Abbey for work, but the Arch Abbey depended on the townspeople as well. From a log cabin on top of a hill, through collaboration with the surrounding community, we have grown into a large institution. Today we have about 90 monks, and our outreach has grown from ministering to people in this area to places all throughout the country and throughout the world. We've also uh, obviously grown from uh, very humble beginnings with our seminary to the institution that we have today. And so over the years, we have uh, developed uh, formation programs, seminary programs, priestly preparation programs for people in high school, in college, and then later in theology, uh, graduate school studies. Uh, We prepared people from this area, certainly, but also uh, priests from far-reaching places in the United States over the years as well. We have had as many as 700 or 800 students here uh, at one time. One of St. Meinrad's greatest strengths is its ability to change with the times. We prepare lay ministers for ministry, we train permanent deacons, and we offer ongoing education for priests after ordination. We have students from 20 different countries serving dioceses in Korea, Vietnam, India, Africa, and Europe. We even offer a popular summer liturgical leadership conference for youth, One Bread, One Cup. So I think one of the things we would say about St. Minard is we have a, a great commitment to this place, but we also have a great commitment to reaching out from this place. Just like Einsiedeln and Reichenau, St. Minard Archabbey is a cultural hub. We offer the local area concerts, speakers, a theater, an art gallery, and a rich history. We often through our religious education classes, those kind of things. We got to meet some of the monks and some of the seminarians, and that showed us a kind of a side of our Catholic life that many kids didn't get to see or get to experience. And so having the hill here was just just a sort of an extra little element to our formation that we didn't necessarily even realize was happening. Over the years, the town has changed a lot. Many businesses have closed, some have opened, but we live in a different day and age. The town and the Arch Abbey don't have to be as self-sufficient. The town has a lot of organizations that are run by volunteer forces, the Volunteer Fire Department, the Chamber of Commerce, and St. Minoret's Area Revitalization Team. We also have a park, community center, and like many towns, we have the Girl Scouts and the Boy Scouts. I feel very 
much that we are a changing town. We are not a dying town. I feel very strongly about that. I think through the years we've been very good about adapting to the new times, that we're not hanging on to what was, even though some of our businesses have closed. We've got new businesses, but I've just always felt that we were a special group of people. Speaking of the changing town, the Archabian Seminary and School of Theology have changed a lot through the years as well. Father Dennis sees the greatest challenge facing St. Meinrad is that it remains forward-thinking. We must certainly understand our heritage. We must certainly be proud of our heritage. We must certainly build on our heritage, but we can never rest on our heritage. The effectiveness of any institution, and perhaps even especially religious institutions, is to continue to face the future, to anticipate the needs of the church, and find creative ways to meet those needs. And I think that's one of the things St. Meinrad has done very well through the years. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy learning about St. Meinrad, the man, the martyr, and the place. This podcast was produced and edited by Krista Hall and music by Brother Joel. We want to give a special thanks to Father Dennis Robinson, Father Harry Hagen, Father Adrian Burke, Carol Tresh, Brother William Sprower, Mary Jean Schumacher, Tammy Sheeter, Jim Paquette, and Christian Mosek. Remember, tune in next time to hear Brother Joel talk about receiving his new name. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. If you like this episode, please consider giving us a review on iTunes. It will help other people find our podcast. To view a picture of the St. Meinrad Triptych and some historical photos, or to hear some more stories about St. Meinrad the Place, visit our blog at stmeinrad.edu slash echoes. What do you have for breakfast? Uh, yogurt, rye bread with a piece of cheddar cheese, and then there's two of those cheeses that Brother Martin gets that are just amazing. Mm. I love when Brother Martin's breakfast attendant. One of the cheeses I found out, it, the rind is soaked in wine, and that's why it's so good. That's amazing. We, have we a- go through so much cheese, though, seriously. Our kitchen doesn't know how we go through as much cheese as we go through. We have a cheese fund. Did I'm you, sure we did. did. you know that? I'm sure we have to have a cheese fund <laughs> because we got to buy stock and cheese the amount of cheese we go through.